Dingo Kensi has a phrase that has always stuck in my mind that I like very much. Uh, he talks about mingling our minds with the Dharma, which I just love. That's what I want to talk about tonight. And uh, the rest of how I remember it, I'm not sure if this is accurate or if I made it up, but mingling our minds with the Dharma until it's so mingled that we die with no thought of Dharma in our minds. You get, you get, it's like, it's so mingled, you don't think about the Dharma as some separate belief system or anything. It's just how our minds are, purified, you know. So I can only assume that would be the mind of an arhat, who knows. But mingling our minds with our dharma is really, mingling our minds with the dharma, a sense of really using all the aspects of our life and all the, realizing that all the aspects of the Buddha's teaching, not just meditation, are all about purifying these these troublesome habits of mind we've been talking about the whole time, these torments, greed, hatred, and delusion. And um, as we know over and over that the cessation of dukkha, the third noble truth, is the remainderless cessation, relinquishment of craving of the torments. And this purification of these habits of our mind, what I'm calling mingling our mind with the Dharma, this is the work of our whole lifetime, our whole lifetime, at least, right? <laughs> we don't have to know what happens before or after, but it's at least this whole lifetime, not one retreat, not 10 years. And I don't say this to be um, depressive, but actually it's been more and more inspiring to me when we realize the actuality. And in the last some years, I've come to appreciate more and more how everything the Buddha taught is coming from some different angle of helping us purify, transform these suffering habits of mind. And so all of it's to be used, not so much in a hierarchy. You know, it's been helpful to me in my own practice and in also speaking with people when, you know how on a retreat, say, we can get caught up in, well, should I do concentration practice or Vipassana practice? Or which is better and which do I need? And which is going to get me enlightened faster? And if I miss one, do I not get it? And if I'm doing Vipassana, which form of Vipassana? More precise, do I do noting? Do I do open awareness? Do I do choiceless awareness? Do I just do resting back? Do I do, you know, and, and if I don't do the right one, I'm going to miss it, you know? And then which things do I have to know? And okay, Donna Seal are pretty good. You do that if you can't do anything else, but that's not the real thing, right? <laughs> and trying to figure all that out can be, I'm making it a little funny, but it can really cut close to the heart, right? Sometimes I've talked to plenty of people, and myself included, really like in a, a real state of suffering frenzy, kind of about, oh my God, you know, why didn't I know about this one before? I've been wasting all my time and I didn't know about this one. This is the real one, you know? And so <laughs> starting to actually realize, I think, this is me thinking, the Buddha taught all these ways, he offered all these different ways because at different times, different approaches are what's accessible to us. We need them all in all times of our life. And when, say, concentration isn't available, but the practice of sila is, not to think, well, okay, I'll do sila, what the heck, you know, until I can get concentrated again, that's the real thing. That's, that's kalatia-driven. <laughs> but to actually come to respect and honor these. I just want to touch lightly on several of these. None of this is new information, but I'm just kind of trying to bring it together under this way of looking at it. So knowing, of course, that transformation of these habits, as deep and uh, long-lasting as they may seem, is absolutely possible. And it's possible because really, citta, what we call the mind, is not a static entity. It's not an entity at all. The way Andy Olensky, I liked his description of citta, this moment of mind-heart. 
In Buddhism, the mind is not a subject that has objects as content. We talk about it that way, the mind. Right away, we think of a thing, just, just from the use of language. The mind is not a subject that has objects as content, but is rather the activity or process of cognizing a flow of events. Right, so it's, this is to me one of the most freeing things I've realized that the, the so-called mind is simply a moment-to-moment arising activity of cognizing, moment-to-moment-to-moment-to-moment-to-moment. And when we try and look at a whole lifetime or a whole hour, you know, it, we can't do it. Moment-to-moment, that's workable, that's possible. And that's what we're cultivating. We're cultivating sati, mindfulness, is moment to moment. One moment giving rise to the next. When, when, when anger is being cultivated, it's also moment to moment. A moment of anger, unrecognized, being fed by attention, gives rise to the next to the next. But because it's a flow of events, really much how Guy was describing Kama, you know, the past is over, but it's moment to moment. How intention works, moment to moment. This is where all of the different um, tools the Buddha offers us come into bear, where we can work and where we can really see change. And also recognizing, and this again, not to be... um, demoralizing, but it's just, it seems to me so true and it's helped. Recognizing how subtle and deeply ingrained the habits of the torments are. And, and a lot of you, I mean all of you have seen that. And, and but instead of getting, uh, getting frustrated when you think, oh you're clear of it and suddenly it pops up. Has that happened to anybody? Suddenly it pops up. You say, oh right, it's the conditions arise. Without mindfulness they pop up. So this little example from my life occurred to me today when I was thinking about this. Just so little nothing, but I was on a self-retreat, uh, I think it was last year, it all blends, I think it was last year, in Switzerland, in a place I like very much. And so I'd been on retreat, quiet, for about two weeks, and I was just walking on the, in the, on the country roads there and the hills and mountains there. And there's, you know, people walk by, not many people. And... So I was on retreat, which makes this all the more kind of, I, I really had to notice this was happening because I should have been more mindful. So I was just walking in present and uh, a woman came walking um, up to me, passing me on the road and came over to me with like some kind of piece of paper in her hand, like a brochure, said something to me in Swiss German. So I couldn't understand it right away, but I, I could have understood a little bit had I paid attention. But instead, what immediately came up, and I could track it later, what the conditions were, was a kind of a pulling back, a turning away. It was like, no thank you, like that, you know, and turning away and walking away. So it was like an aversion, a no thank you, don't. And I realized later, and I felt bad, of course, later. I thought she was probably just asking me for directions or something. I mean, I didn't even really uh, stop to see. But I realized that it was you know, all the years of when you're walking somewhere in the street and someone comes up to you with something they're trying to sell or something they're trying to get you to take or the watchtower or something like that and just, no, please, leave me alone, you know. And that's what was coming up, just like that, boom, like that. And I kept on walking and she walked and then within two seconds, the, the sense of, you know, moral shame came up and it's, ah, oh, aversion, just like that. So quick the conditions come when I'm not paying attention, when I'm not mindful. Now to see that without judgment is really important. This is mindfulness coming back into play again, and we understand. I picked such a simple little example, because that's to me what helps me see, oh right, all my life really needs to be dedicated to using whatever tools are accessible in the current conditions to help to purify the habits of mind because they just pop up so easily. They're so comfortable, you know, otherwise. But change is possible when we really are committed, which all of you are, or you wouldn't still be here. And um, we can use all the different ways, but change is possible. I just want to tell you this story that Sally was very kind to point out to us. On the, It was um, a little 
interview with someone on the news a few weeks ago with a, a young uh, man who is uh, a rookie in his first year as a wide receiver, which is uh, American football term. Uh, he's a wide receiver on the New England Patriots, which is a fairly successful team. And so that's like, you know, a primo spot, you know, for some young guy in being in football. But the interview with him was very touching because he was talking about how when he uh, was in college in, in Georgia, went to college in Georgia as a football star, so I guess he was there on a football scholarship, and he realized that he could only read on uh, a junior high level, that's about junior high is, a, is about ages from about 12 to 15. So he's, he's reading on a low level for someone in college. And he decided he, he really wanted to get better at that. He really wanted to learn how to read, and he really committed to it. <clears throat> he would start trying to read, and it wasn't easy. It was not easy for him. In his spare time, when he was getting massages, they had a, you know, in the, in the, in the interview on, on the TV, a picture of him, you know, getting worked on after a, after a football game and reading, reading away in some book. <clears throat> but the interesting thing, he was in a Barnes and Noble looking at books, and he struck up a conversation with some middle-aged lady, and, you know, he's a young guy. So he's a young African-American guy. This is like a middle-aged white lady, and she says, well, why don't you come join our book club? <laughs> and he goes, okay. And he joined this book club. He went to it every month for two years, and they show a photo, and it's like all these middle-aged white ladies and him, you know? So they're all twice his age, besides, and they're all sitting there talking about books and what's going on, and it was like, you know, and he's so happy being there. He did this for two years. And now, you know, now he's on the New England Patriots, but he, now he just wrote a children's book about, you know, the magic of learning how to read. And he's also started a, a kids' liter, literacy foundation. And he's talking to the interviewer, and, and he's saying to the interviewer, you know, somebody, you know, sometimes people called me a nerd. And the interviewer said, a nerd, I don't know if you know that, if you're not a, yeah. a nerd. And in the interviewer said, well, how, do you, how does that make you feel? Because usually that's a kind of an insult. And he goes, wow, you know, actually, I'm proud of it. It's like a badge of honor for me. He said, the football, that came naturally. That was a gift. I didn't have to try. But this reading, I really had to try. I really had to commit. And so it's like coming from where I came from, to be called a nerd, that's a badge of honor. And it's, his vibe was so sweet and loving. And showed him with all these kids, you know, with his book and teaching him how to read. And then he goes out, you know, and plays football and knocks people over. You know. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> he was in the Super Bowl. You couldn't do better than that in your first year. So just to see when there's commitment and dedication and the willingness to keep doing change is possible for all of us in all the different realms. So, not to underrate the power of conditioning, and then we can embrace what the Buddha called like the three pillars of the path, which is dana, or cultivating the uh, intention of generosity, sila, non-harming behavior, and bhavana, which is the mental cultivation, and then other various tools I want to mention. They all work together, whichever one is accessible at a particular time. As Sally was saying last night, you know, we really are often in cultivating the happiness of a wholesome heart and really letting ourselves feel it and trust it and move in that direction. We are so frequently moving in the opposite direction of the stream of culture, of the stream of society. Thich Nhat Hanh wrote, this is a long time ago he wrote this, but uh, I know he saved it. He said, society makes it difficult to be awake. We know that 40,000 children in the third world die every day of hunger, but we keep forgetting. The kind of society we live in helps us forget. So that's why we need exercises for awareness. 
for mindfulness. He says, we've lost our taste for silence. Every time we have a few minutes, we pick up a book to read or make a telephone call. This was before the days of cell phones. <laughs> and it was bad enough then. Now it's over, right? We know that. <laughs> we do not know how to be ourselves without something else to accompany us. The first thing for us to do is to return to ourselves in order to recover ourselves, to be our best. That's what the Buddha is offering us, asking us to do, giving us so many ways to practice. So I just want to mention a little bit about generosity and moral conduct, it, just in terms of how it works to purify our heart-mind. I don't have to go into it a lot at all because we've talked about it all. But in, in the early days of um, when I first began to practice Vipassana in the West, I mean, I first learned it in India, but in the West, in, in, in Insight Meditation Society, so when it wasn't with Goenka anymore. And I think it's not everybody, but it's kind of a, a Western thing in the beginning where we were all really enamored and fascinated by the meditation aspect, whether it's concentration, Vipassana, that's really, you know, the place it's at. And it is, you know, very powerful, don't get me wrong. It's the main thing we're doing, but it's almost as if a, a glance would be made to Sila. You take the five precepts at the beginning of the retreat. Donna we'd say, oh yeah, generosity is good. Not that much said about it, kind of assumed, yeah, it's important. And if anything much was said about it, it was because it helps to have the mind, not have remorse, and so you can practice better, kind of. Okay, I'm a little bit glossing it, but it was sort of like that. And Joseph always tells us how Manindra, his teacher, at one point came to him and was listening and hearing the Western students and said, what are you doing? It's like you're sitting in a rowboat and you're rowing as hard as you can, but you forget to untie it from the dock. <laughs> you really need Donna and Sila. It's all part of the purification process, and sometimes that's what's available to us. Sometimes that's really where we can, can touch. We've talked about this through the retreat, when the moments when Kalatia is not distorting our perception, is not, you know, distorting our heart, where you just feel that sense of purity. And you may not think of it as much, just kind of this, this, this cleanliness, kind of. Someone described it to me as their awareness feels squeaky clean, like right after you've cleaned a window, you know, and it's just squeaky clean, just nothing there. So sometimes we look for that in a meditative state, but you can feel this sense of the, the happiness of a wholesome heart-mind can be recognized in acts of generosity, in moments of virtuous conduct, or simply refraining from harmful states. Also, that's often where it's available. You don't have to wait for a deep meditation state. So, thinking about um, the practice of generosity, in this way, as a transformer of consciousness, as a transformer of the habits of clinging, obviously, I mean, that's obvious, but the habit of me and other, the habit of self-reference, the habit of fear too. So think of uh, generosity that way. And to me, the secret teaching that I didn't really get uh, so much here, I didn't get until I'd spent a lot of time in, in Thailand and Burma, was the, the really powerful happiness, the joy that comes about through moments of generous intention. Whatever it is one is being generous about is almost secondary. But that, that moment of, it comes in three phases, the idea of a generous thing, and there's really this thing in, in Burma of, oh, an opportunity for Donna. That's the phrase that's used. This is an opportunity for Donna. And in my kind of growing up Western way of hearing it, which is like generosity is good, and if you have more, you should give to those who have less. And it's well-meaning, and, and it, sure, that's good to do. But there was a, kind of like a should and a little bit of a hierarchy there, a little bit of separation. And really 
what I, what I got in Burma is just this sense, of, just the idea of an opportunity for dana. People would get happy. They'd kind of perk up, oh good, this is a place I can be generous, whatever it was. And we know people there who amazingly give so much. They have good businesses and they give so much money. And then there's people who have nothing, but they'll just, like a little boy came up once who I never saw before or after, and just gave me this tiny little flower in the street, this little seven-year-old boy. Well, he's probably 15, but he looks seven. And <laughs> gave it to me and bowed and walked away. I thought, what, what little kid here is going to do that when I'm walking down the street? Can you imagine? But he was like so happy to offer and go away. That happiness. And then in the receiving, there's that equal happiness. You let it in. And this quality in that moment, the moment of thinking about it, the moment of actually offering the generosity, a smile, whatever. And the moment of, if you've been the one who's been generous, reflecting on it later. It also brings up joy. The joy not of, I'm such a great generous person, but the joy, the happiness of a wholesome heart in that moment. That's really what's being cultivated and developed with this practice of generosity. And it's something we can really just look at in little ways all through our life. Again, it's not that I should be generous. Again, still, that's better than doing nothing, I guess. But that's not, that's not the transforming of the purity of the habit that I'm talking about. It's really uh, letting yourself feel just that, that happiness. Because the sense of barrier goes away. And I had to learn to receive as well with that same openness. Because when someone comes and offers and you go, oh no, I have so much more than you, don't offer that to me. You feel what that does? It just shuts the whole thing down. And the, the joy is really in the mutuality, in a sense of the, the sense of separation is gone in that moment, the sense of clinging and the sense of ownership. It's a beautiful, um, just a beautiful thing to include in our lives as practice. And it's something that is available, you know, in times when we think other things aren't. I'd always heard, and I didn't understand it for a few years, that if you're really annoyed with someone, you should give them a gift. I'd heard this as a Buddhist teacher, and I kind of thought, I, I didn't really get what that was. And then I started getting suspicious if anyone gave me a gift. <laughs> <laughs> But I can see now, if you're talking from the point of really the intention of heart of generosity, that transforming intention. So if you're giving the gift, it means truly giving it. It doesn't mean, here, take this gift and be gone. It's about really, to really be generous, you open your heart and hand the flower. And in that moment, there's not ill will. When there's really that intention of generosity, there's not clinging and there's not ill will. So it's not to give them a gift for them, it's to purify your own heart and mind. So it's like things like this are available to us when you can't find your breath, when you can't find a moment of concentration, when you think uh, bhavana, never mind mental cultivation. You know, you can just do a little something, smile at a lady in the store who looks really grumpy, you know. Be kind to the person behind you in line who has a whole lot of bags and you don't have much and just really with kindness let them go and not look for something back you know but just do it and let yourself feel the happiness of that that's not an ego trip that's really one of the the wonderful things about how mindfulness wisdom works and we've said this before but you can really trust it is that when you put mindful attention on the wholesome to use the buddha's language it feeds the wholesome so when you're feeling the happiness of generosity with awareness, it lets that grow. That's not the same as I'm so great. It's really feeding the wholesome. And mindfulness on the unwholesome, but being mindful of, I don't want to give that, this is mine. And just being mindful of how that feels starves it. It doesn't mean it naturally goes away, but you're feeling, oh, that feels really crummy, you know? You know, it just feels crummy. And uh, mindful awareness notices that. So it's like trustworthy to explore the difficult habits. We don't have to be afraid to look at them with mind. If I see it, it's going to get worse. It's just the reverse. It's just the opposite. So that about Donna. 
and sila, and this moves into the, actually the Eightfold Path, where the Buddha talks about sila, samadhi, panya, right? Um, virtuous behavior, samadhi is the whole bhavana meditation aspect, panya is wisdom. But to start with sila, the, there's talk, they talk about three, called the three rounds of kalesha, the three different levels, you could say, that kalesha acts out. And I think Sally talked some about this last night in talking about motivation. But the, the first round is called the transgressive, means you actually act or speak from unwholesome, from greed, hatred, or confusion. And what purifies the transgressive level of defilements of kalesha is sila, is restraint, not acting out, consciously restraining non-harming behavior. And this isn't just, well, that's the best we can do. This is the Buddha saying, a fool is characterized by their actions. A wise person is characterized by their actions. It is through the activities of one's life that one's discernment, one's wisdom shines. So it may be that it's at the beginning of the, of the rounds of the transgressive, but it's actually shined through our whole life. So the transgressive actions of speech and body motivated by greed, hatred, and delusion. And we're protected from that simply by restraint, by wise restraint. We may still feel, be quite aware of, there's a thought coming up of wanting to say something aversive or do something unpleasant or harmful. But the actual conscious refraining from doing that is a wholesome act, a wholesome act. And we can really start, well, you've seen it all here, how when we do, and bring mindfulness along with you, when we do act or speak from unwholesomeness, it has an effect of it keeps on feeding, you know, it affects other people and the whole thing grows, right? So you're feeling like a little bit impatient and you go into a store and you say something in a really impatient way, oh, please, can, just whatever it is, to someone in the line in front of you or to the, the lady who's checking out your groceries, and you can see right away it affects that person. And you can feel it come back, or maybe they're a little more grumpy to the next person coming after them, and then that affects that person, and it's a whole chain reaction. Or the person just is nasty back to you, and so you leave the store in a worse mood than you came in with, and you slam the door in somebody's face, and you go out and someone says, can you give me some money? And you go, no way. And you go and slam the, and you go, and it just, it just keeps feeding itself. We can see that. So the simple restraint, you know, the lady checking you out is making a mess of it, and you manage to keep your mouth shut and not say something consciously recognize that restraint. That's a wholesome action. And we really, we tend, uh, maybe you don't, but I tend to go to the fact that I'm still thinking the unpleasant thing and so I'm still bad and wrong. But to notice the restraint really feeds it. If it's possible, you could even feel, you know, there's still the unpleasant, there's still the unwholesome thing in your mind, so you don't quite it's not quite so clear that it's a happiness as with generosity. But you can a little bit get a sense of the little bit more purity of not speaking in that way. You really can, can feel that. Restraint. On retreat, you can practice restraint at the sense doors. On, off of retreat, it's a little harder. But here it's like when you can see grumpiness in your mind or greed really strong, just going out through the eye door, you can just, okay, bring mindfulness in right at the eye door, feel the greed, and just kind of keep the attention here and not feed it by going looking for something to want. 
Do you find yourself sitting on, well, I don't know if they have it here. At IMS, when you're sitting on the toilet and they have the cleanser on the back of the seat and you just sit there and read that thing <laughs> avidly, you know, for 10 minutes. What is hydrocloxyporite? What could that be, you know? <laughs> Let me compare it to this one over here and see which one is, you know, it's like a little bit. Restraint at the sense doors can actually be helpful not to feed the greed. And you can appreciate that. And the more we practice, there can be a happiness. This, this, um, the Buddha says, it's not an act of will that freedom from remorse arises in one who is endowed with virtue. It is in the nature of things. It's just natural. If you, if you are acting with virtue, refraining from unwholesome speech and actions, it is natural that you would experience freedom from remorse. And the more we practice with this, it really is purifying the habits so that I imagine you all can taste this. I'm, I'm sure, I'm sure you all can to start to recognize and appreciate how natural aspects of sila become for you. How, you know, in, in a place where maybe earlier there would have been an urge to act on something, nobody's looking, and it isn't. You don't. Appreciate that. Feel the purity of that. It's something that can really bring us happiness. So I'll give a simple example. Oh, I forgot I had some examples I wanted to give of the happiness of generosity too. I might go back and read that. But anyway, so there's a simple example. I've said it before. It happened here with a friend of mine and I were, uh-oh. <laughs> we were in the old Spirit Rock bookstore before it moved. And we went down and I wanted to buy a little statue that I had seen there. And you know how it's self-service and no one was there at all. But my friend had often helped Mary Ann, uh, on day. So she knew how to get the little magnet thing that opened the big cupboards out in the other room, you know, that, that they don't have handles, but you get this magnet. And oh, I can tell you that now because it's all changed. It's not there anymore. So she opened it, and this one, this one huge closet was just full of, you know, tens and dozens of statues. So we were piling through all of them, trying to find the one that I wanted, and this had to each, we, I took out one and she took out one and almost simultaneously, they were very delicate and this one was Manjushri, it had this little sword and we just barely touched it and the sword broke. It happened to both of us and we're like, oh, it broke. <laughs> you know, these things are like $60, you know, and it broke. We didn't say anything. And we just, we didn't say anything and we just looked and said, okay, you know, and we took it over to the office and confessed to Marianne and she was like, ah, it doesn't matter, it happens all the time, you know, we, we glue it together and, you know, sell it again half price, but we were ready to pay for it. But later, we discussed it and the thing that, that made us both so happy is there was a fleeting thought in their mind, we can put it back, no one will know. <laughs> no one would know, no one was there. And that thought came up in each of our mind and got absolutely no traction whatsoever. It came up and then it wasn't even a possibility. And as my friend, she sent me an email later and she said, oh, I wonder if I have it. Um, oh yeah, I liked how she put it. She said, yeah, to see one's mind have that thought and then one has the choice right away to see what karma is one creating in this moment. And in that moment, there's no choice. It's so clear. And this is the, the effect, the vipaka of previous purification. And it's something you can really appreciate. There was no possibility that either of us would have done that. And instead of going to bad that the thought arose, it's like, wow, feel how lovely it is to be able to trust the purification that is going on in your mind and heart to trust that sila is really available. And the more you let yourself feel that happy wholesomeness, the more likely it is to arise again in the future. So just very simple things, but really letting it in. What I wanted to read, two things about generosity, because the other thing about generosity is hearing about others' wholesome actions can bring joy to us too, it's contagious. 
just in the same way acting in an unwholesome way can kind of start a, you know, a chain reaction going, so too can generosity. So I just want to read you these two little stories. Maybe it won't make you feel good, but just see how do you feel. Because if it touches something in us, that's touching it because that happiness of the generous impulse is available in our heart and mind. So this I cut out a long time, many years ago, about a a 78-year-old man, Matt Dawson, who had worked for 59 years for the Ford Motor Company in Michigan, and he was still working. He could have retired, but he didn't, he didn't because he gave, gives most of his money away. And, he had, and when this was written, he had just given $200,000 to Wayne State University. But over this period of his life, he gave away more than a million dollars. This guy working at the Ford Motor Company, he gave... Uh, Uh, His first gift was to the United Negro College Fund, $50,000. And since then, he gave them almost $200,000 more. And he gave $200,000 to Louisiana State University, money to churches in Detroit and Louisiana, thousands of dollars to the NAACP and to community colleges. And when people said, why do you do it? And he says, well, I get joy. I get happiness out of this. So he was really nicely dressed. I can go home and sleep good. He says, no matter how much you make or how little you make, you've got to save a little of that to share. I was raised like that to help others. I have more than enough for myself. See, it's hard to not feel good, right? You can try, maybe. If you're in a really bad mood, I understand. This is another thing from a, a, a woman at a, re, at a retreat uh, a few years ago, and she wrote this to me. She had just, uh, she'd heard some of us talking about offering support to some poor nunneries in, in Burma, and she had offered some Donna. And then this came just out of the blue. She said, um, I've been on the verge of quitting a job I no longer need, in quotations, and wondering if or how this job serves me. I've decided to keep the job for five or six more months and give all the earnings away to causes that I love. And this one uh, is the first of many. So she's saying, thank you, because this gift brings me great joy and opens a whole new chapter of work as Donna to the world. It's really available to us, you know, you don't have to, we don't have to be in deep retreat or retreat at all for this to be available. And we can call on it when we can't find Bhavana. Okay, so back to the three levels of Kalesha. The obsessive level is we're protected by sila, restraint. The next level, uh, the, the, um, Transgressive level. The next is called the obsessive torments. You can already figure what that one is, right? And that we're protected by samadhi, by collectedness of mind. And so the, the, select, the obsessive, you can guess, it's not just wandering mind. It's really the spinning, the spinning, whether it's a self-hatred story or a greed story or a lot, it doesn't matter what it is. But that spinning, spinning where we just feel assaulted by it. Not just a once shooting up like when I was walking past that lady in Switzerland, but really, you know. And so samadhi, in all the different ways that it shows up, not just one-pointed focus, although that's one way, but samadhi really meaning the collectedness of mind, heart, chitta, the unification, the, the um, steadiness. So you've all experienced it in different ways. It, it, it doesn't have to be a deep state. It can be many things are still happening, but there's this sense of just the, 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 the just so that the chitta just feels collected. A lot can be going on, but it's not as if your attention's all distracted, flying all over the place. There's a sense of stability. Samadhi can be, it can be samatha, one-pointed concentration. All the Brahma-viharas in the way we've been sharing it here are samatha practices. They kind of do double duty because it's samatha, the collectedness of mind, but it's also cultivating the wholesomeness of Brahma-viharas. 
which is obviously another way of purifying the habits of mind through bhavana, through meditation. But the steadiness, what that does is when the mind's steady like that, and really it can be one-pointed focused or wider, it's a, it's a protection from the hindrances arising, from the obsessive kalesha coming up. It's almost like when the, when the, when the collectedness is strong, it's almost like the hindrances can't get in. I don't know if you've noticed sometimes something that usually the self-hatred would come up and it would spin and it would drive you crazy, but you're, you're, really, you're pretty present. The tension's steady. The mind is focused. And the self-hatred thought tries to come up and it just, almost like it just bounces off. It, can't, it just can't get in. Or it comes up and you just look at it and it's gone. But it's, 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 it's a little different from wisdom. It just can't arise in that moment. The mind is so clear and steady. That's samadhi. And that can go, of course, to, as the Buddha said, depths we can't imagine. This is really useful when whatever state doesn't have to be one-pointed. It can be this, we've talked about kanaka samadhi, what Mahasi Sayadaw called momentary samadhi. The same steadiness, but the object can be changing from moment to moment. But the level of steadiness and collectedness and unification can still be quite strong. I think when Sayada Upandita talked about Vipassana jhanas, he was alluding to this kind of equal level, or you could say, of collectedness, of steadiness, but we're with changing objects. It's not moving into one-pointed practice. So when it's like this, not to, not to engender clinging, but one of the reasons it's so pleasant is because the hindrances aren't there, distorting the chitta, the mind and heart. And this purity is a kind of happiness, a kind of peace. You can experience it in different ways and to different degrees. But one of the reasons, um, if, you want, if you are doing samatha one-pointed practices, really can be very supportive, is because it can give us a, a, a lot more obvious taste of what a pure mind-heart moment feels like, you know, so that we can actually say, oh yeah, there is something better than having another M&M, you know. <laughs> there is something actually more uh, beautiful than fulfilling the next desire, and it doesn't matter if what's going on is pleasant or unpleasant. It can bring a kind of confidence in the power of the mind. And then it can lead to attachment because, you know, that's just how the the hindrances work. But in the moment of the steadiness, the unification of mind, let yourself taste that. And I want to again make the point, it's not dependent on one-pointedness. It can be when a lot of things are going on, but there's still that steadiness that isn't, isn't distorted by kalatia. So this is, uh, really appreciate this. But it's not a state that we can cling to and it doesn't bring us to the end of the habits of mind, often people will see, especially if in very, very focused, a, a kind of a, a samadhi state that's very kind of focused, it may seem really strong, and it is really strong, and the hindrances can be very far away. And then that state, either you end it, or it decays, it's gonna decay sooner or later. And sometimes it happens that within not too long of a time, people are really like so surprised that the hindrances or the difficult patterns come back. Sometimes they come back slowly and not too strong, but sometimes it's like they hit you upside the head. And you go, what's going on? I was so in there, I really had it, and now this lust is coming up like crazy. What's going on? And it's because that protection from the obsessive defilements is temporary, it's conditional, it's useful, because we really can appreciate that quality of protection and that purity of heart and mind, and it strengthens our faith and trust, but it's not, it's not all, it's not the end of it. And so the third level we talk about is the so-called latent kalashas, or the underlying ones, these are, the, these are the ones that drive us crazy. 
these are the ones when you think you're so clear and you like people told me told me this story they're walking so mindfully it wasn't here it was lioness down to tea and they said, I'm not going to have anything to eat this tea. They're walking extremely mindfully past the table. And suddenly their arm reaches out and grabs something and goes and goes, <laughs> who did that? <laughs> that wasn't me, <laughs> right? It wasn't you. It was greed. It just sprang up, you know? When the conditions are there, they say that the, the seed is there latent. And if the conditions are there, which are the conditions for greed and just not awareness, not mindfulness at that moment, poof, they can spring up. Has anybody noticed that? And you think, I was done with this pattern, right? I've seen through this pattern. It was over. What's the matter with me? Don't take it personally. This is why we need all the different ways of practice. But they can really spring up. And that's a little one. That's a funny one. But I heard this interview on NPR couple years ago, in the middle, two men were discussing work they were doing in, in prisons, in men's prisons with young men. They were calling their work interrupting violence. So I missed it. I didn't actually get what, how they were doing this. But they were quoting one young man in the prison that they were talking to, and he was saying, he said, I wish I could take back that three to five seconds of my life when I did the violent act that put him in prison and completely changed his whole life. That haunts me, actually, that. That three to five seconds. Latent defilements come up, and, you know, we're all so affected by, our, by the conditions and the society and where we live, and we can't think we're separate from that. We can't be separate from that. So... I'm not saying, we never know. We know, well, we do know what latent defilements. You guys have been looking at your minds for a long time. We know what's there. We know what they are. And so it's like really having the, the trust and the, the potential of purification moment to moment and the willingness to use all the tools at our disposal. So it's wisdom, wisdom, panya, that uproots latent defilements. The Buddha says, they are abandoned not by acts, but by wisely seeing. This is where what Thich Nhat Hanh says, what we've been saying all along. Wisdom is the result of the long process of continuous awareness. You've seen that here, right? And the, the difference between um, uh, obsessive defilement that's kept at bay from uh, samadhi and one that's seen through with wisdom you can kind of feel the difference. It feels like more truly gone in a moment. Like someone gave, well, an example, you've all seen this. Say the old habit comes of you're seeing and the comparing comes and the judgment comes and then the self-judgment comes and the aversion's coming and that whole self-hatred, you know, that can happen like that. I know a lot of you know that. And we can see it. Sometimes you can be mindful enough, you're really in it or you can be really concentrated, and it, it, it just doesn't really quite come up. But with wisdom, it would be, an example would be, and I'm making this up, the seeing comes up. You see the seeing, the comparing comes up. They're better, they're worse, or they're doing this better. And then suddenly it's like, wow. The wisdom comes that everything's in constant flux, in constant change. Their conditions are completely different from my conditions. What is there to compare? Comparing makes absolutely no sense. And this isn't like a, a thought train. This is a sudden perception. And in that moment, the craving, the comparing, the conceit in that moment just completely drops away, right? It's completely gone. And I know I've had moments like that. That's a moment of wisdom seeing through a latent kalatia. Do you get a sense of how, it, okay, it might come back, when it's completely uprooted, it won't, but it'll come back a lot, a lot, a lot. So we keep on purifying. We keep on cultivating the steadiness of awareness because that's what allows the wisdom to arise. Steady awareness in a mind of, moment of heart and mind that's free from kalatia. So when we get discouraged, on retreat, off retreat, when we see that we're trying to put all our eggs in the basket of meditation or of one particular form of meditation and that's not available at this moment or it's available but it's not doing what we think it ought to do. 
Um, just remember there's all these other ways. Sila, Dana, the Brahma Viharas are also practices of intention. It doesn't mean you have to be overwhelmed with mudita, but every time that phrase is said, that's a movement of intention in the heart. It's different from, oh, who cares? You know, it's, oh, I really am happy for your happiness. That's shifting the channel. That's transforming the habits in a little way. Two other things I just want to mention. One is wise contemplation. We've mentioned it a little, but, uh, and I've alluded to it, but there's a sutta from the Buddha I like where he talks about, he's talking to some lay people, a layman, and he's basically saying, you know, we're busy in our lives, what can we do to, to kind of purify our minds? And he gives six contemplations, of which I'm just going to refer really to two. The other four are contemplating the three refuges. So if, the, if contemplating the the Buddha, the Dharma, the Sangha, is the, the beauties of those, is something that is really speaks to your heart, then really do that. Like I mentioned, a lot of the Burmese nuns use contemplations of the qualities of a Buddha that really inspires their faith, those three. The other one is, is contemplating the devas. So maybe if that is something that meets you, use that. But the other is contemplate, recollecting your own virtues and recollecting your own generosity. And I just want to read what he says. He says the same thing about both, so I'll start with, I'll just do it with generosity. He says, furthermore, there is the case where you recollect your own generosity or where you recollect your own virtues. And say, you know, just thinking about how generous you've been, how I live at home, my awareness cleansed of the stain of possessiveness, generous, open-handed delighting in being generous. And then he, for the same with the virtues, they are unbroken, unspotted, liberating, conducive to concentration. So, at any time when a disciple of the noble ones is recollecting generosity or recollecting virtue, your own generosity, your own virtue, their mind is not overcome with greed, is not overcome with aversion, is not overcome with delusion. So he's saying in that moment you're cultivating purity of heart-mind. Their mind, their heart heads straight based on generosity, based on virtue. And when the heart is headed straight, the disciple of the noble ones has a sense and the meaning of the Dhamma experiences joy connected with the Dhamma. So Mahanama, that's who he's talking to. You should develop this recollection of generosity, this recollection of virtue, while you are walking, while you are standing, while you are sitting, while you are lying down, while you are busy at work, while you are resting in your home crowded with children. In other words, any time any time that we can remember to do it. And to me, that's something I never did, you know, just feeling lost and think, let me recollect my generosity. Does that occur to you all very much? Let me correct, let me recollect all the times I didn't act in a harmful way. This is something that's so available. It really brightens the heart. It leads us straight. And the last thing I want to mention, I know I'm kind of going through these quickly, is coming off of Sally's, where is Sally? Sally's talk last night on motivation, that at times we can consciously tune, um, always it's helpful to tune into our motivation, but sometimes we can, can consciously work to transform it in very simple ways before, during, or after an action. That was the Buddha's advice to his son Rahula. Whenever you can notice the intention, if you notice it before an action, great. If you notice it only in the middle, good. If you notice it only after, good. But if it's wholesome, keep doing it. If it wasn't wholesome, stop doing it, even if you're in the middle. But also, it's recognizing that we can sometimes consciously take the time to transform our intentions 
before an action, if we have time to do that. This is from um, Sister Chan Kong, who's the, the nun who's been with Thich Nhat Hanh forever. This is from her autobiography years ago. And they were peace activists uh, during the Vietnam War, but she's writing this now. They've been living in France, and the Vietnam War was long over. But this was a period when the Vietnamese government was um, arresting a lot of um, artists and monks and activists. And she said, every time I received news of a new arrest, I became angry. And I knew that I had to do walking meditation. Is that the first thing you think when you become angry? (laughs) It's not a bad idea. Sometimes I would walk several hours in order to regain my calm. Sometimes I needed several days or even weeks to relax my heartbeat, knowing how unfairly the authorities have acted in arresting such a lovely monk, nun, or artist. I always waited until I felt serene before beginning any campaign, because she's quite an activist. Thanks to this serenity, my words were gentle but firm, and people found it easier to cooperate. She was involved in all kinds of activities and letter writing. And so this, this is like, this is someone who'd been doing this since she was 16 years old and still doing it. It's never, we never just uh, stop. We say, okay, there's anger. I do want to act. Let me really cultivate non-anger before I do it. I love that. It really inspires me. And on a more simple level, Minger Rinpoche suggested in one of his books, and it's something I know Tibetan practice they do a lot, is just as you're going through the day, here on retreat or in your life, just consciously, you can just, uh, the intention, he says, can transform a kind of a neutral everyday activity to a really wholesome, beautiful quality of heart and mind into so-called positive ones. So for example, when you're washing your hands, you say, may, may my hands become clean so that I may be of benefit to all beings, something like that. Or when we're eating, you know, may all beings have delicious food. Or the example he gives that I love, sleeping. When you're going to bed at night, when you're going to sleep, he says, when we get into bed with the mind of bodhicitta, We aspire that our sleep be the cause of increased capacity to help all beings. Isn't that great? If you can do it with sleeping, you can do it with anything. And it may seem, okay, la, la, la. But keep saying it, keep saying it, just like with the metaphrases. Sooner or later, you start to actually feel it a little bit. It's a wonderful, it's a wonderful practice. And it's really fun. So I just want to end with some words from Eleanor Roosevelt. (laughs) I was a couple, last year, I was visiting a new museum, relatively new, in Atlanta, the Museum of Civil and Human Rights, just opened a couple of years ago. And I, I found it a very, very powerfully organized. So the first two floors are all about the civil rights movements in the 50s and the 60s and the Freedom Riders and uh, Martin Luther King, of course, because he came from Atlanta. And it's very powerful and interactive. And then the top floor is about um, different human rights and some of the um, human rights abuses that are going on in the world at this time. It was very immediate. And there was one quotation from... Eleanor Roosevelt, that I just want to end with, if I can find it, that I got from that part. Here we go. Because I think it really works in the sense of just working to transform our motivation, even in little actions, and using all the tools at our disposal, all of them, whatever is available at any moment of our life, it's all working to purify, it's all working to free our hearts and minds. Eleanor Roosevelt. Where, after all, do universal human rights begin? In small places, close to home, so close and so small that they cannot be seen on any maps of the world. Yet they are the world of the individual person. 
without concerted citizen action to uphold them close to home, we will look in vain for progress in the larger world. So I think mingling our minds, our hearts with the Dharma, that's the closest to home we can get to start to activate human rights in the world. So thank you for listening. So if you have energy, most welcome to come back for our last sitting together tonight. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.